Hello, and welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is managing editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. Today, as you have requested, we will be talking about Edgar Wright's Scott Pilgrim versus the World. We wanted you all to vote on what we should be talking about this week. Obviously, this podcast has shifted from talking about new releases because there are dandy, because of coronavirus, and we are focusing on older films that are currently streaming on Netflix uh, that people have seen and may want to revisit and may want to talk about. So uh, we put out a vote, and you all voted for Scott Pilgrim versus the world. So we're happy to talk about it. Uh, it's been a Gosh, I don't. I think it's been about five years since I last watched it. Uh, even though I, I have nothing but good things to say about it, really, and I was a huge fan of the comic that inspired it. Uh, but the way this episode is going to sort of play out, we're going to talk about the film's release back in 2010 and why it kind of didn't take off. Uh, what was wrong with the marketing strategy? And then we're going to talk about the film and then how it relates to kind of Edgar Wright's career and, and things like that. And then we'll finish up with recently watched. So um, let's let's take a trip back to 2010. Uh, Comic-Con has just blown up. Like, basically, at the time, studios were looking at, oh, wow, they showed the first footage from Iron Man at Comic-Con, and then Iron Man was this huge hit. So Comic-Con is a thing, and Comic-Con is really growing, and, like, Twilight is coming to Comic-Con, and it's becoming... Studios are seeing it as this event space where they can use it as kind of a launching pad to really boost interest in their late summer slate or for films coming the next summer. So they're seeing it as kind of this launching ground that gets people talking and it's really worth the investment. Like 2010 is really like kind of the height. 2010, 2011 is sort of the height of Comic-Con. Um, in terms of a an industry event that like studios want to use to push their their slates. For example, in 2011... An entire high-rise Hilton was covered in a poster for Cowboys and Aliens. And the summer before that, it was covered in Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Um, Two massive box office hits. (laughs) (laughs) Just universal, just just spending money, just very confidently spending money. Um, So, and and it's it's worth saying, so in the 2010... Uh, Comic-Con, this is how Scott Pilgrim was marketed. There was this whole Scott Pilgrim experience where like you could talk to the stars, they would screen print you a t-shirt, there was like, you could play the Scott Pilgrim video game. Um, There was like a whole thing. It was like really in-depth in terms of like this whole section of just Scott Pilgrim stuff, in addition to all the regular marketing. Then there was a panel, and the way the panel worked is during the panel, they were handing out these little pins. And some of the pins had Scott's face on it as sort of his little 16-bit avatar and said, one up. And then so Edgar Wright, the the co-writer and director, he is moderating the panel, talking to the stars. And the way the panel ends, he's like, okay, if you got that pin with the little one up on it, follow me, we're all going to go see the movie right now. So he kind of leads everyone from the convention center down the street to the theater where Scott Pilgrim basically has its world premiere. And then, you know, they show the film, the crowd goes nuts. Uh, and then after the, the movie, they bring metric on stage to play some songs. Um, so it's, this is all a lot of money and a lot of hullabaloo to make Scott Pilgrim a thing at Comic-Con. The film opens in theaters a couple, a few weeks later and flops. What happened? 
And it's sort of a twofold thing. First off, it tells us that Comic-Con does not quite carry over to the larger cultural conversation. That you can spend a lot of money on people at Comic-Con, but just because people are having a good time there, that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to tell all their friends, oh, you should go see Scott Pilgrim. Second, I think the ad strategy that Universal put into place outside of Comic-Con was misguided. Because I think Universal assumed that because the Scott Pilgrim character and the movie itself is so male-oriented and so directed at gamers and, like, things of that nature towards a certain, like, young male audience, that those people were already on board. So the work they had to do was make it look more like a romance, like a rom-com, like a a traditional rom-com, play up the romantic aspects and try to win over female viewers. Um, And no one came. (laughs) <laughs> basically I showed the movie to my brother a couple years later and he's like I had no idea this was a comedy <laughs> like if it, to give you an idea of like someone who's not paying attention to this stuff on a daily basis and was only marginally aware of the film did not know it was a comedy yeah I, from the outside looking in I will say I had no I had no idea any of that Comic Con stuff had happened like I was kind of like I started working for Collider in the fall of 2010 so that was the summer of 2010 um, so I was like kind of paying attention to what was happening at Comic-Con, but like that noise, that buzz did not reach me. No, um, no, of course wherever. not. Why would, and why would it? Yeah, it, it didn't, uh, it didn't reach outside that. I had read like, uh, I I mean, I was excited about the film because I was excited about Edgar Wright and I had read some interesting comments from filmmakers like Jason Reitman and, uh, Kevin Smith. And I think even Quentin Tarantino, like Edgar Wright was showing the film to these people. And these people were like getting the word out of like, Oh my God, this film is amazing. Um, but I had to drag my two friends to it. And I was like, no, the whole movie is like kind of like a video game. Um, and they had new idea as well. And they hated the movie. Uh, when we walked out, they were like, that was dumb. Um, which was a bummer and I think kind of colored my perception of the film as well. Um, and I didn't love the film when I first saw it. And I still, you know, uh, we'll get into this when we get into a bit, uh, into the film a bit later. Um, but like the, the reception of it was not, it was not a crossover hit. It was not a movie that a ton of people were talking about. No, it was not a film that people were really like discussing. Um, They weren't really, it was just, it was kind of this late August flop. And even Universal was sort of like, are people tired of Michael Sarah already? Let's not put his face on the poster. Um, So the poster has no one's face on it, (laughs) which is funny. Now, when you look back and it's like, oh, this film has Chris Evans and Brie Larson in it before these mega stars of the MCU. Like they're just sort of in these supporting roles, Um, you know, but it's, yeah, it's a film that I just think the marketing for it was misguided. Not that they cheaped out or that they were trying to dump it. They just misfired uh, completely. Um, but this was a project I was very invested in because I was a huge fan of the comics that it was based on by Brian Lee O'Malley. And then so when uh, and then when uh, Edgar Wright was attached, I became even more excited because I was such a huge fan of Shaun of the Dead. Um, and then I was just like, kind of just eager, like, when is this film going to happen? When is this film going to happen? Um, and eventually, you know, I went to the set when they were filming and like, it, it all looked great. Like that we went, we saw the chaos theater set that they were building. And, um, what other set did we see? I feel like we saw another big one. Um, anyway, it was, it was got to go to the production offices and, and look at all the artwork, like the, the fake, uh, Chris Evans movie posters, uh, his character, Lucas Lee. 
Um, got to talk to pretty much everyone in the cast. Um, and it was, it was great. It was like, again, Universal did not dump this film. I don't, I don't want to, I, I, I want to kind of avoid a revisionist history where Scott Pilgrim is this sort of, you know, neglected blockbuster. Uh, they tried, they just misfired and whatever they were doing with their ad strategy just did not bear itself out. And I think the result is that Scott Pilgrim became kind of the cult film in Edgar Wright's filmography because like you like the thing is, is like in a weird way, like Shaun of the dead is also kind of a cult film, but because Shaun of the dead is not an expensive studio blockbuster. Um, it was this indie British comedy. It's weird for me to qualify it as a cult film because it, it found like, to me, it's a hit. It's a hit film relative to its budget. And like no one in it is really famous at the time. Um, and yet people found it and discovered like, and like loved it. And like, it became like this huge thing. Um, Scott Pilgrim is a cult hit because Scott Pilgrim has persisted over the past decade. Like the fact that a majority, like the a plurality of our listeners said, please talk about Scott Pilgrim compared to like, it beat out Raiders. <laughs> More people wanted to hear us talk about Scott Pilgrim versus the world than Raiders of the Lost Ark. So, and that's not to say Scott Pilgrim is a more popular film, but I think it's a film that clearly has uh, an audience. Yeah. It's, you know, I don't know. Edgar Wright's an interesting filmmaker. I mean, you look at the box office of Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, and those movies are not massive worldwide hits, but everyone I know loves those movies. And that includes friends of mine who are, you know, more nerds and kind of up on things and know who Edgar Wright is, but also friends of mine who don't know who Edgar Wright is, but are like, I love those movies. Those movies are a ton of fun. Scott Pilgrim still has not, you know, crossed over that threshold. It's not a film that I hear a lot of people talking about unless they are, um, I don't know. It's kind of a a specific demographic. And, you know, for me, like I like, so I think the film is, is a tremendous piece of filmmaking and it's a, it's a really ambitious step up for Wright as a director. I think he really pushes himself and you can see it in terms of visual stylization, uh, incorporating music into a film. Um, the, you know, he had described the film as a musical, um, only instead of music set pieces, they were fight scenes. Um, I think everything about the craftsmanship of the, of the movie is, is just wonderfully impressive. And I do find the film to be a ton of fun. Um, I don't, and I watched it again recently and I still, I don't really like Scott Pilgrim and I don't really like Ramona flowers that much. And I, okay, continue. I'll continue. We're about to, we're about to get into it. (laughs) Oh, we're going to fight. We're going to (laughs) fight round one. Uh, which I also didn't know that Bill Hader was the voice of the, uh, you know, continue. Yep. Um, um, so that makes sense. Um, but it's like, I understand the movie is about Scott learning to not be a dick. It's about, you know, he earns the power of self-respect at the end of the film. Um, spoiler alert, I guess. Uh, but, um, but that doesn't make him less, you know, he's funny. And I think the, the comedy bits with him work really well. I think Michael Sarah is wonderfully cast it's not. It's just not really a character I'm, I'm super into rooting for because of how much of a dick he is, especially how he treats knives. And then Ramona, I don't really get it. I mean, I get, I understand infatuation, and you know, obviously, I was, I too was once a teen- teenager. I understand what infatuation feels like. Um, uh, you know, sometimes based on just very innocuous things. But I don't. It doesn't necessarily give me a reason to root for them as a couple, which I know is not the point. We'll get to the the dual endings uh, later on in the podcast uh, because I think there's one that's vastly superior to the other. Um, 
And so that has always just kind of kept the film at, at a bit of a distance for me. Not to say, like, I have to love every character in every film. Like, Travis Bickle is a despicable person. But the filmmaking in Taxi Driver um, makes you uh, – it's a journey that's compelling. And, and he is a compelling character. Whereas with Scott, I just feel he's, he's kind of a dick. And it's not – it's just not a ton of – uh, well, it is fun, but it's not necessarily compelling. Mm. And, it, uh, and in the structure of the film as well, and I've I felt this every single time I've watched it, it's the problem when you have a countdown coming. So when you know there are seven evil X's, you know there are X many more. And every single time I watch this movie, there's a period in the middle of the film um, where it just kind of uh, – the pacing for me just kind of like draws, like drops. And so I just uh, – it hits kind of like a downbeat, and I can't – like it's around the time uh, when the clash at Demon Head and uh, after the fight with Brendan Ralph and, uh, you know, Mae Whitman comes in, and, and it just kind of feels like, oh, yeah, like this is kind of still going. Um, although I will say on this most recent rewatch is the most I've liked the film, and I do like the conversations between Scott and Ramona towards the middle and latter half of the film where they're starting to be a little bit more honest about themselves. Um, because I do think it's a film about them both trying to become better people. Um, I did find those a little bit more compelling and kind of owning up to like, Oh yeah, I am pretty shitty, aren't I? Um, it just takes a while to get there for me. So, so here, here are some of my notes. Um, I'll just got those in. So again, I'm a huge fan of these books and I was really impressed that Edgar Wright was able to condense all of them into one movie. Like he didn't try to say like, oh, you know, the first movie will be the first book and then we'll figure it out from there. So he's really trying to condense everything from the books and like, what does this make, you know, how does this work? And like, what do I need to focus on? And things of that nature. I agree that both Scott and Ramona are not um, likable in the traditional sense. Um, I, my concern going into this rewatch is I think one of the reasons I kind of adored the books and adored this movie at the time is it's very much a product of being in your early to mid twenties. It's very much in that time of your life where you're both, you're trying to figure out your own identity, you know, out of college into the real, you know, into the real world. Who are you? What is your responsibility? But also you're still dating. And like, what does that mean? So things are getting a little more serious. It's not that sort of like frivolous high school stuff, but you are, you have sort of been shaped by it. And really, so for me, the story of Scott Pilgrim has always been a story about baggage, but I was worried like, oh, would this seem kind of frivolous now seeing it as like, now I'm in my mid thirties, I'm married. Like I'm a very different person now than I was in 2010. Um, but it still works for me because I, 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 it's not so much that I am repulsed by these characters, but I understand where they're coming from. Like, I understand that like Scott is an immature character and that makes him kind of unlikable, but the immaturity is the point, like in to the point where he's dating a high schooler, he doesn't want to grow up. And the film then goes out of its way to say like, it's not sexual. It's really about him running to the safety of something he understands that cannot be consummated uh, that can't become serious, even though for knives, it, it means a lot to her. Uh, and again, that goes back to Scott is kind of selfish. He's kind of, he's immature. As for Ramona, she is aloof. She has been hurt so many times that she sort of stands apart. And this, on this recent experience, uh, recent rewatch, um, I really liked Mary Elizabeth Winstead's performance more than I had on previous viewings. Cause I felt I had a better understanding of where she's coming from, uh, as someone who is, sort of warming up to Scott, but also she's kind of using Scott in the way that Scott is using knives, which is you are a safe haven for me, 
but I don't know if I'm willing to emotionally invest uh, in the way that a relationship requires. And then, of course, the the plot of the film is defeating baggage. That's what it is. It's all, of, it's just baggage. And like, how do you move forward when your past is sort of nipping at your heels and sort of, can you get over this stuff? And I think the arc of the film says, yes, you can. You, you, you can deal with it. Um, and you're different people on the other sides of it. So for me, I like those character arcs. And I think the film is able to weather the sort of, you know, uncomfortable personalities of Scott and Ramona first by having good casting with Michael Sarah and Mary Elizabeth Winstead, but also just, you know, the personality of the film is so vivacious and effervescent that you never feel like you're getting dragged down in like, you know, the morass of a relationship. It's always upbeat. It's always fun. Um, the, the, this is a very deep bench of great actors. Like every, like every time oh. I watch this, there's a different standout. Like this time for me, the standout was Ellen Wong, who is just so endearing as knives. I'm like, what happened to Ellen Wong? It's like, oh, she's on glow and I don't watch glow. So I need, there's another reason for me to watch glow. Um, Spoiler alert. She is also underutilized on glow. Ah, uh, <laughs> but she's so good in this. She's she so is good. Actually in the most recent season of glow, I think she had more to do. Yeah. She's a really great monologue in one particular episode um, in the most recent season of Glow. That's very good. So. Um, but I thought she was very good in this, but like everyone, like I mean, Chris Evans is hilarious. Um, you know, Brandon Routh is great. Uh, Kieran, Kieran Culkin is, is fantastic. Kieran Culkin, my God. He's <laughs> so good. He's just so funny. Uh, yeah. And especially now being a Succession fan and looking back, I'm like, oh yeah, he's always been able to like do this kind of thing really effortlessly. Yeah. So it's like, it's just a great bench of talent. And I, I agree. I think Edgar Wright really pushed himself here. And I think he pushed himself in a way that he knew he needed to push himself because, well, like, I think Sean of the Dead is really good. And like Hot Fuzz, it's like, for you, Scott Pilgrim is your least favorite Edgar Wright film. Hot Fuzz is my least favorite Edgar Wright film. Um, I still think it's very good, but it doesn't. Because you love fascists. <laughs> I'm just, I'm going to, I'm going to hit you later with that gif of, um, Rafe Spall and, <laughs> and <laughs> doing the, 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 face. the face. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it's a really good film, but I think Edgar Wright was kind of conscious of like film fans were aware of like, oh, he's, he's doing real storytelling and very well directed. But on a surface level, if you're only like casually aware of Edgar Wright, like, oh, he makes parody films. Like, oh, Shaun of the Dead is a zombie parody. And Hot Fuzz is an action movie parody. And it's like, well, yes, he is doing callbacks to those to those kind of genres, but they're not naked gun movies. Like, they're not like spoofs. Um, that's different. It's a different thing that he's doing. Um, and I think Scott Pilgrim kind of allowed him to kind of really break free of that um, and sort of show off his chops in a different kind of way by making a different kind of comic book movie um, and really showing off uh, just so many skills. I mean, there's just the, the attention to detail in this movie is, is terrific, not just in terms of how it adapts the, the graphic novels, but just the little drop-ins. Like, there's so many fun little sound cues just, like, littering the film. That it's just yeah. It's a really, really fun thing. Well, and it's no surprise that he brought in Bill Pope, who shot The Matrix as mm-hmm. a cinematographer yes. on this movie. I think the the fight scenes in particular are just like I've never, I still haven't ever really seen fight scenes done like that in that way. They're so stylized, but yeah. also don't come across as cartoonish. They're, 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 so, they're, yeah, there's kind of like an anime influence, but not like at a speed racer level. 
Yeah, and they don't come off as overly CGI either. I mean, I watched it on Blu-ray. This movie is 10 years old now, and it still looks stunning. Mm -hmm. Like, it doesn't look dated in terms of the effects or anything. And I think that's because so many of the effects were done in camera and, and done practically. Yeah. And I, I kind of wonder, like to me, the editing is so good. And I'm like, are the, like, but Edgar Wright does so much of his editing in camera, but like, there's just like the, like it, if you look at like the first act of the film, the way editing is done and sort of like how he's continuing the story, but he's changing the setting. <laughs> so yeah. someone will say one line and then someone will have a follow-up line, but it's at a completely different time and place. And yet you haven't lost track of where you are is just yeah. genius. And it's so specific. And that's kind of what he does. Um, because in order to do that, you don't put that together in editing. You put it together when you shoot it. Cause you know, this line is going to pick up in this location right after this line in this location. So therefore this shot will follow this shot. So I want these shots to look exactly like this as opposed to just shooting a bunch of coverage and figuring it out later on. Right. Exactly. Or um, the Marvel way, <laughs> the Marvel way. But before we get into that, I did want to mention uh, one thing that, and it came in your defense of Ramona. Um, one thing that kind of bothers me is that Ramona, I never really feel like I know her that well in this movie, and maybe that's on purpose, but like the relationships are all juvenile, pretty juvenile. Um, I mean, it's like a, you know, an elementary school crush and, you know, a high school fling. Um, I forgot when the twins, twins are, but that one is kind of skipped over to when the Gideon is really her only like real relationship. And, you know, obviously it's a controlling relationship, but then it's explained away by like a chip in the back of her head. So like it don't, whereas with Scott, we see how he treats knives and how he's just kind of using her because they never got over, um, uh, Brie Larson's character and envy Adams envy Adams. Yes. Uh, Brie Larson kind of unrecognizable in this, but I also hadn't, I didn't realize before that she's doing this thing with her voice where she's very like California girl. Mm -hmm. And then when Scott kind of calls her on her bullshit and calls her by her real name, she drops to like a real voice, um, which I think is a really smart choice on Brie Larson's part. Um, nice touch there. Oscar winner, Brie Larson. Um, but with Ramona, like, I feel like I don't really, still don't really know or understand her by the end of the film because the Gideon relationship is so kind of over the top when you throw in that like microchip that's controlling her at the end. Yeah. Can I, can I, can I jump in here to explain? Yeah. So in the books, it's different. Basically Brian Lee O'Malley. And and I should also say the final Scott Pilgrim book came out around the same time as the movie. So Edgar Wright basically had to fashion a different ending because the books hadn't, he had kind of in a weird way caught up to the books um, and just the way the timeline worked out in the books, minor spoilers ahead. So in the movie, you, you see how she travels through subspace through Scott's head. Yeah. That's a whole thing in the book. That's a whole thing. She gives off these sort of little, you know, uh, she has this sort of weird glow about her. And so the subspace thing and her psyche, it all kind of, it's this whole thing that eventually gets explained in the seventh and final book about like Ramona and like her story and what's happening in her head. And it's clear the movie doesn't have time for it. And that's unfortunate. So what the movie I think is deciding to do, and I'm not saying like, this is the best decision ever, but I get at least what they were trying to do is let's review Ramona as Scott reviews Ramona, which is that he sees her as very cool and kind of aloof and kind of distant, but he wants to get to know her better. And so we can only see Ramona as Scott sees Ramona um, rather than sort of this fully formed person, as opposed to someone like Knives, who gets scenes that happen outside of Scott. 
you know, like her with her friend and like her sort of, you know, knives exist independently because she's sort of on her own trajectory. And I think this now ties into the two endings. Yeah, that makes sense. I have not read the books and I never understood the whole uh, like way station um, for like traveling in Scott's head. So I guess that comes through. But yeah, so on the Blu-ray, there is the original ending of the film in which Scott chooses knives, which is a better ending, in my opinion. I go, back, I go back and forth because I think on the one hand, he and knives do have really good chemistry and it pays off them sort of fight dancing together at the climax. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, knives is still 17. <laughs> she's still like, a high, like nothing is like, she's more mature now, but she's still a high schooler. Like it doesn't, not enough has fundamentally changed. Whereas you could make the argument that both Scott and Ramona have changed in such a way that they are willing to try again. Um, I go back and forth. I think, I think yeah. the knives ending offers strengths that the Ramona ending doesn't and vice versa. So my feelings on it are, so by the end of the film, for me, Scott and Ramona were never really in love. Like Scott was infatuated with Ramona and Ramona found this guy that was so unlike Gideon that it made her feel different. But it feels like one of those relationships that's like a stepping stone to a different, more mm-hmm. mature relationship. Right. Um, so it makes sense for them to part in my mind because, you know, Ramona's going to go off and further her self-discovery, which is essentially what she says in that original ending. She's going to try um, kind of a new path uh, with Gideon now finally out of her life. And Scott has kind of helped her get out from under the thumb of uh, Gideon's kind of controlling abusive nature. And for Scott, you know, I don't think him and Knives are, you know, made for each other or anything, but, like, he goes back to the relationship that he was in when he started the film with this girl who is clearly kind and clearly caring about him um, and clearly willing to, you know, um, support his interests and his band, and he's going to, you know, try and return that favor by now being a selfless person. Um, that's kind of how I view it. Like no, no one, it doesn't seem like knives or Ramona are like, Oh my God, this wonderful relationship. So mm-hmm. romantic. I have to see them get together. I think it's more about kind of, uh, an internal journey and, and yeah. journeys itself. Well, and, and honestly, I think that works better. I think that works better for a story about love in your early to mid twenties yeah. rather than yeah. sort of being like, let's spend the rest of our lives together. Like it's sort of, it is, it is a story about dating. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, it's yeah. not like to, you know, it is, it's, you know, when we say a love story that can encompass so many things, this is really a dating story and that's fine. That's not to minimize it. It's just different. Yeah. No, I think that's bang on. Um, it's a story about dating, not about, uh, you know, endless love. Right. The, the challenge to Scott isn't like, if you defeat the evil exes, you get to marry Ramona. It's you get yeah. to keep dating her. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. That makes sense. So, uh, but I, I still think the film, like I, you know, it was a film I put on and I kind of, because I was familiar with it, I expected to sort of like be, you know, like fold laundry and watch it. And it was like, like you were like last week with the dark Knight, and then just, you just get caught up in it. Yeah. I was just very much like, Oh, I, 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 it's gotten to the point where I can kind of quote it. And I just, I love all the little moments that it has. I think it's just so full of personality. Like one of my favorite moments is, and it's such a minor thing, but like, Jason Schwartzman is fighting with Scott and like, they're like, they, they, at one point their blades cross and Jason Schwartzman just goes, Hey, <laughs> just <a> little, hey. <laughs> it's just a bunch of like really well-timed little comedic beats. Yes. Uh, which is something that Edgar, I think has perfected over, you know, his first few films. Um, 
And, you know, here he showed he could do it on this massive canvas with a big budget and still maintain that sense of like a meticulous handle on it. Although there are a ton of deleted scenes on the Blu-ray. So not to say the movie wasn't meticulously crafted, but it did change in the editing room um, Mm -hmm. after the fact. And I haven't gone through those deleted scenes, but, you know, even just as a comic book adaptation, I think it's super impressive. uh, Absolutely. Screen. Yeah. I mean, again, if you've read the books, it's kind of crazy how much of Brian Lee O'Malley's like the way he frames things, the way that he like, like for instance, like um, when we get to see Wallace and Scott's apartment, all those sort of little, you know, labels on everything about what belongs to who. And like, that's all from the comic. Um, yeah. It's, it's, but what I like is that it's faithful without being slavish. Um, like when I watch Sin City, I'm like, what is the point of this movie? Like what literally, yeah. what is the point? If you're just going to use, a comic book as a storyboard and then just cast your live cast live actors. Like that's not really enough. And it does. I feel like Sin City doesn't really have a pulse of its own. Whereas I, with Scott Pilgrim, while I can see a lot of love for the source material, I also feel like there's enough of Edgar Wright's personality in there to make it its own thing. Yeah. Which was what he was trying to do with Ant-Man, which was supposed to be his next project, uh, which, you know, should be worth mentioning. Scott Pilgrim came out in 2010. Uh, Iron Man came out in 2008. But the very first Comic-Con panel for Marvel Studios was announcing Iron Man. John Favreau was on stage, but so was Edgar Wright, who was announced as directing Ant-Man. That's how far back his attachment to the Ant-Man movie at Marvel Studios goes. Um right. Because at and the time, they were like, Marvels didn't really know what a Marvel movie was yet. And they're like, oh, yeah. yeah, of course, we'll just get Edgar Wright to do Ant-Man. And then by the time he finally got around to it, they kind of did have an idea of what a Marvel movie was, and it was not an Edgar Wright movie. Well, and they thought, I mean, uh, Iron Man and the Incredible Hulk started production around the same time, and they thought Incredible Hulk was their ace in the hole. They thought that was the the one that was guaranteed to be a hit, whereas Iron Man was kind of their, their gamble that may or may not turn into a franchise. Um, so they were very much like experimenting at that time. Uh, and so Edgar was supposed to do Ant-Man in the mid-2010s, I think, and... Uh, so producer Eric Fellner, who uh, runs Working Title, got cancer. And Edgar Wright had promised Eric Fellner that he would complete the, the Cornetto trilogy, um, Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and then a third film. And so uh, he asked Marvel for permission to delay Ant-Man, to come back to Ant-Man after he finished this third Three Cornettos movie, uh, which he did. He went off and made The World's End. Um, and Eric Fellner, thankfully, is still with us today. He pulled through. Um, the World's End, I think, not so... Maybe, I don't know, maybe sneakily, I think it's his best movie that he's made. Uh, I would agree. It's his best movie. Like, it's a film that I didn't even really get at the time. Yeah. Um, I was like, oh, this is, I'm not really sure I'm with it. And then, like, on repeat, I'm like, oh, I see what you're, do- what you're doing here. And it's just, it's a very mature, very, um, it's it, it shares the vibe of Sean and Hot Fuzz while showing a lot of growth um, and really being a film about maturity for that matter. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's really well done. And like, I mean, I have a soft spot for baby driver, which I think is, is an excellent film, but also like it's Atlanta setting just, um, you know, Edgar, I can be our honorary mayor. Um, but like, <laughs> you know, I, I definitely think of his filmography at oh, the world. Like I'll put it this way. I think Shaun of the dead is a perfect movie. Like I cannot find fault with it. I think it's <laughs> yeah. incredible, but I think, um, the world's end is a deeper movie. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, because it's, it's Edgar, I mean, it, the jokes are still there, the meticulous is still there, 
the visual gags and visual ambitiousness is still there, but it's got this added darkness to it as it tackles issues of addiction and of immaturity and depression um, and kind of like refusing to move on with your life when, when all of your other friends have. Um, and But it's also just like tons of fun. Um, so yeah, I think that's his best movie. And so we made that. Um, even though I think it's the less lesser beloved of the three, because I think it's just not as obviously like what a rollicking good time. Well, not just that; it's not as spoofy. In a, yeah. You know, it's not. It's yeah. You know, um, Sean and Hot Fuzz wear their genre influences on their sleeve. They are very much. They are. Fa- they are films for film fans. <laughs> like there's that sort of camaraderie. Like, hey, we all love Electric Light and Blue. You know, like it's that kind of thing. Um, but you get to the world's end and it's not like, obviously there are sci-fi influences there, like, you know, invasion of the body snatchers, but it's not about that. It's not about like, here's a checklist of movies you need to see before you to fully appreciate the world's end, which is smart because for, it's a film about the, the trap of nostalgia. So for the film to be overly nostalgic would be self-defeating. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, and I, I also just love rewatching it because I think it's it's also just very well put together. Um, and then he returned to work on Ant Man, and he cast the thing. And you know he and Joe Cornish wrote the script for Ant Man, and so when he came back, it was time to you know start to figure out all right how does it fit into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and you know what do we need to add in here to please the Marvel bosses. I, and we haven't ever really gotten a straight story, story as to specifically what the issues were. We do know that one one point of contention was that Edgar doesn't shoot coverage. As we discussed, you know, he, he edits in camera, so he knows exactly which shot follows what shot. But Marvel likes a lot of coverage because they like to... They like the ability to change stuff in the editing room, which they have. They have very significantly changed plot, tone, all kinds of stuff on films like Thor The Dark World. Yeah, I was going to say, look no further than Thor The Dark World. Yeah. Even Thor Ragnarok, apparently with two weeks of reshoots, they significantly retooled the plot of that movie. Um, which I think and, is, I can I can see that, yeah. Yeah. And I don't know what the original plot of it was or, or how uh, it was supposed to play out, but they significantly changed a lot of that movie, and it worked out for the better. Um, but in order to do that, you have to, as a shooting style, you have to allow for um, changes. But you know, the way Edgar Wright makes movies, it just doesn't really work that way. It, it, he spends a lot of time preparing and writing the script and working out the shot lists, um, and there's room to change some stuff in the editing room, but it's not a, a really super malleable piece of material once you're done. Like the movie's kind of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also have to assume part of the point of the contention was fitting into the larger Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah, I have a, uh, I have a pet theory that Edgar Wright's Ant-Man doesn't really involve the quantum realm. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't make a thing of it. And yeah. that obviously, now we can see, oh, you need the quantum realm to pay off Avengers Endgame. Like that, that has to be introduced um, so that audiences are on board with what that is and what you can do with it. And, you know so that they really understand there's this, this, this little microverse that comes out of Ant-Man that will be, you know, very important to the entire plot of our biggest movie. That's that just makes, a, yeah, that makes a, sense. That's a pet theory of mine. I don't know if it's true. No. And like the publicly on record, the way that Kevin Feige explained it was that it was a, an issue of, you know, uh, Edgar saying like, Oh, you're really not going to stop giving that note. And, 
Kevin Feige saying, you know, oh, you're really not going to you're really not going to address that note. So kind of an impasse of like they kept giving the same notes over and over again and Edgar kept saying no and no. So it was like, uh, you know, came to loggerheads. Uh, we do know that the the major turning, turning point was that Marvel rewrote the script with two onset writers. Um, I can't remember if it was with or without Edgar's knowledge. And uh, when Edgar read that script, that's when he said, you know, I got to leave this movie. Like, this is not the movie I want to make. Uh, you know, you've had someone rewrite the script. This is definitely not the, the direction I want to take this. And so I'm going to exit the film. Um, I think Patrick Wilson was part of the movie at that point, and he's no longer... Um, but everyone else, Edgar, like Edgar cast, um, Paul Rudd, he cast Michael Douglas, he cast Evangeline Lilly, he cast Michael Pena. Um, so, and we do know that the, uh, the big train sequence at the end was Edgar's, that was Edgar's set piece. So, but yeah, it, uh, it was a bummer. I mean, the other X factor there too, is that this is before the dissolution of the Marvel creative committee. Um, so, you know, Marvel had... When Kevin Feige was reporting to Ike Perlmutter, the CEO of Marvel Entertainment, instead of to Alan Horn, the head of Disney, um, there was this Marvel Creative Committee that would give, you know, extensive notes. Uh, I think they famously told, famously told James Gunn to like cut the songs out of Guardians of the Galaxy or something just really incredulous and really kind of ridiculous. That committee didn't get. Uh, so Kevin Feige eventually successfully changed the structure so that he no longer reported to. Ike Perlmutter and reported directly to Alan Horn, which then allowed him to dissolve the creative committee. So those notes didn't come anymore. That came around the time they were starting to make Captain America Civil War. But the first two films that were made without the creative committee and without Ike Perlmutter were Thor Ragnarok and Black Panther. So that's where you can see like, oh, okay, now they've got some more freedom to allow these filmmakers to really kind of shake things up. Yeah. To to put it another way, uh, Black Panther, as we know, it doesn't get made in 2015. It gets made in 20, like the re- it exists in 2018 for a reason. Um, yes. The kind of film that they would have allowed Black Panther to be would not have been what we eventually got. Uh, Ryan Coogler mm-hmm. would not have been able to really put his stamp on it. No, no, not at all. Um, and same with Captain Marvel. Marvel uh, Ike Perlmutter was the person saying that they couldn't make Captain Marvel because women wouldn't show up to superhero movies. So, yeah, Ike Perlmutter's a piece of shit. <laughs> he really is. Like, and I can say, like, and here's the thing: like, it's not just like, oh, we have a disagreement about movies. Like, Google Ike Perlmutter Veterans Affairs. He's a piece of shit. Um, yeah. uh, so anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, whatever. He's not going to listen to this. Um, and even if he does, he doesn't control Marvel. So, well, he doesn't control Marvel Studios. He still has control. Does he have control over the comics anymore? Like, I think, isn't that Feige's now as well? Like, I think so. Yeah, I think it's only. Like, I think he owns it, like, kind of like in name only. Like, he's like, he makes money from it, but he has no creative control. Yeah, I think you're right. I think. Yeah, because there were there were some layoffs involved in the like significant restructuring that happened last year. So. Right, where like like Feige just basically gets control over TV and comics and all of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Which makes sure. I mean, and look, honestly, I think that's a sound business strategy because I think you know I don't want to get on too much of a Marvel tangent in our Scott Pilgrim <laughs> podcast, <laughs> but I do think that's a smart move because. If your most successful, if the most successful item in your portfolio are these Marvel movies, then everything should kind of flow from there. So that's to say, like the comics can't be independent because obviously, like you have comics like X Men that just aren't making movies right now. Um, but I think it allows you to sort of, 
if you look at the movies as kind of a marketing strategy to like get people to buy Marvel comics, it would make more sense to have them close, you know, have a, a, a more unified creative vision than being like, well, you know, this week in the comics, you know, we're going to talk about this. And that's, I'm not saying they should be the same, but I think there should be a little bit more overlap between them. Well, and I think, you know, you saw with uh, Ike Perlmutter trying to do TV as separate. That was run by Jeff Loeb and Marvel TV was wholly separate from Marvel Studios. So Kevin Feige had no oversight over what was happening on shows like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Agent Carter and all of the Netflix shows, Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Iron Fist, what else? Luke Luke Cage. Cage. Yeah, The Defenders. All of that stuff was happening separate from Feige, and it was kind of like no harm, no foul. Like, you know, they could do whatever they wanted, but they were not going to be incorporated into the Marvel Cinematic Universe of the films. Um, And it didn't work very well. I mean, I know they were defenders of some of those Netflix shows, and, you know, I liked Jessica Jones, but it was not, uh, you know, one vision. It was not. It it was was also a Punisher show. I forgot about that. Oh, yes. Yeah, I forgot. But it was not in like in lockstep with what the movies were doing, which, you know, it's fine if that's what you want to do. But I think that, you know, ideally Marvel wants everything to um, be part of the in the overall Marvel Cinematic Universe story, which is now what's happening. Yeah. So. Um, and it's a shame that Edgar Wright couldn't be a part of that. Um, but I am glad that Edgar Wright is still making the movies he wants to make. I think, you know, he didn't, he showed with baby driver. He hadn't missed a step and I'm very excited for last night in Soho whenever we get to see that. Yeah. Technically September. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, I think baby driver is fantastic. Um, it, you know, it's a shame about the Kevin Spacey of it all. I do have what you could say about a lot of movies. I mean, if you want to talk about the shame of the Kevin Spacey of it all, a movie I fucking adore is the usual suspects, which is the (laughs) Kevin Spacey of it all meets the Brian singer of it all. And who boy, I will say I bought a, a baby driver Mondo poster and, and not too long after I got it, the Kevin Spacey stuff happened. And I was like, Oh, I'm so glad his face is not on this poster. Yeah. Like, yeah. So it's rough, but that movie, uh, you know, I, I think again, Edgar is pushing his limits. So it's an action movie that's very different from Scott Pilgrim. It's, it's set in a world of reality. It's very grounded. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's not, uh, blurring the lines between, uh, you know, the fantastical realm. Um, but it's got these fantastic car chases. And on top of that, the added layer of difficulty in making everything match up to the music of the film, uh, I think is just wonderful. Um, so I'm a huge fan of that movie. Yeah, it's it's kind of funny that Edgar Wright has made two musicals that are technically not musicals. Yes. <laughs> like between yeah. Scott Pilgrim and Baby Driver, like there's very strong musical influence in the structure and style of those productions, but they are no one would ever if you were to make a list of best musicals, you wouldn't think to put either of them on there. No. No, not at all. Yeah. Um but anyway, I, I'm very excited for what he does next. And I, I think uh, re- after revisiting Scott Pilgrim, uh, the film really holds up well. And I think it's one I'm going to enjoy revisiting just because even though I'm I was my hesitation with revisiting, revisiting it is because it was so tied to a, a time of my life that it just yeah. was so different. And, and not just a time in my life, but a time in the life that the characters share, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so but I'm glad it, it still holds up for me. Um, and that that makes me uh, happy. Yeah. For sure. Um, all right. Well, with that, let's let's move on to recently watched. What have you seen lately? 
Um, well, I was going to talk about the Great British Baking Show, which we've been watching a lot of, uh, which is just a, a really fantastic comfort food watch. Um, it just makes you happy, and they're also nice to each other, and also gives you a lot of inspiration for stuff to bake at home, um, since we're all at home now. Um, but then I remembered I watched something else that everyone seems to be talking about right now, which is Tiger King on Netflix. Um, I was aware of Joe Exotic because I am from Oklahoma, although not the Oklahoma that Joe Exotic lives and operates out of. Uh, I think he like first came on the major radar uh, on last week tonight when he was running for president um, with that just ridiculous and insane uh, ad that he had. Um, you know, the show is – it's seven episodes. It's a docuseries. It's, you know, every episode is crazier than the last, and there are so many twists and turns and just insane things happening. Um, it's also just very sad, though. I had a really hard time with the first couple of episodes because of the animal abuses, and I, you know, I assume this will come down to kind of your feelings on private zoos. Um, but for me, like, watching these animals caged up in this private zoo in the middle of bumfuck Oklahoma with, you know oversight by this guy who clearly doesn't really know what he's doing. And then also just showcasing the world of big cat quote unquote conservationists and these private zoos, which are similarly just kind of run down and they're giving them like second and third hand meat. Um, these really tiny cages. Uh, it, it's hard to watch. And, you know, the show does eventually get around to this idea. I think it's in the final episode um, uh, and kind of confronting Joe Exotic. And, and there is, you know, an actually genuinely, um, I think, truthful and emotional moment with Joe Exotic talking very candidly about these animals and about, um, you know, would it have been better? Like, did was he doing a disservice to them by keeping them caged for their entire lives? Um, and the answer is probably yes. Um, so that's kind of the cloud hanging over this whole thing, um, especially in the first couple episodes as you're, as you're kind of getting acquainted to it. I do think the story itself is still fascinating. There are so many colorful characters in it, um, and I do think it is kind of shining a bit of a light on these private zoos um, because there's this entire network of trading tiger, tiger cubs. So people can go and pay to pet a tiger cub, but you don't really think about what happens when that tiger cub grows up and becomes an added expense. What is that private zoo owner going to do with that animal? Um, they're probably not going to sell it because they probably can't get very much money for it. Um, and that's kind of the heartbreaking truth of the matter. Um, but again, you know, I, you know, I found it interesting. I'm, uh, I don't know if I'm glad I watched it, but I know a ton of people are watching it. It is pretty insane. Uh, and I assume, a uh, you know, a feature film adaptation is not long off. I do know there's a TV series in the works with Kate McKinnon playing Carol Baskin. Um, so the fan casting has already begun. It'll be interesting to see how that goes. But, uh, yeah, I had kind of mixed feelings on it as a whole. Yeah. So actually it's funny you mentioned Tiger King because my wife and I, we, we settled in to kind of watch it this past Saturday and we got about like five to 10 minutes in and we saw this snow leopard in like a cage and we were like, Nope. <laughs> like, yeah. like just the animal cruelty of it all. Like I get it. Like these are wild characters and like, it's weird. Like the stuff like I can sit through, like I'll sit through, like yeah. I, it's weird that I'm like, I, I can make it more through human suffering than I can through animal suffering. Oh, same here. Same here. I don't Absolutely. know why. Um, but yeah, like the moment we just like, Oh, there's going to be a lot of animal suffering in this. We were like, Nope, I'm okay. Um, I'm sure this is very wild and crazy, but I don't want to, I don't want to be sad about animals. 
So well, and it's not even like explicit quote unquote animal suffering. You're not really watching animals suffer, but it is like if you if you think that that animal being caged in and of itself is an act of cruelty, then the whole thing is suffering. And that's kind of where I fell on it. Mm-hmm. That's exactly. Yeah. Like, I don't think like, I don't think it's like, Oh, the, you don't get to like hit a tiger. <laughs> like you don't get to like hit a yeah. tiger. Like you hit a, like I hit a horse. Like if you hit a horse, it might go faster. Um, yeah. If you hit a tiger, you'll die. <laughs> so like, I don't, I didn't expect anyone to be like, oh, I'm going to whip a tiger and that'll, that'll work out. But I did sort of be like, I just don't want to see these animals like in little cramped cages like being sad like yeah clearly i don't know so uh, but thank you for informing us about tiger king the show that everyone is watching. <laughs> everyone is watching it uh and i feel like it was my duty as an oklahoman to watch it as well yeah so. but just for the record that is not the oklahoma i grew up in i grew up in a metropolis metropolis of tulsa did not look like this um so for my recently watched i decided it's about to leave criterion channel uh, Jane Campion's 2003 film In the Cut, which was not well received when it was released in 2003. It currently sits at 32% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, at the time, it was sort of to give you a sense of where culture was. Uh, it was the, oh, the film where Meg Ryan shows her boobs. That's yeah. what it was known as. The plot that of the, the film. Cultural conversation. That was the cultural conversation about around it. Uh, way to go culture. Um, so anyway, so the plot of the film is that Meg Ryan is this creative writing teacher. Um, and someone in her neighborhood gets murdered. Uh, a homicide detective played by Mark Ruffalo comes to investigate and they begin a purely sexual relationship. Um, and yet there's still this serial killer on the loose. And she starts to suspect that maybe it could be Mark Revelo. It could be her ex who's played by Kevin Bacon. Um, she's worried about her sister who's played by Jennifer Jason Lee. So what the film was doing, I think what the film was doing at the time, no one was really, no one really understood it. Um, and I think the film works very well now. I think it works very well. I think culture has finally caught up to the movie. Um, it is kind of an airless film, uh, but I think it intentionally show intentionally. So, um, basically, you know, it's a sexual film that is trying not to be exploitative. Uh, it's very, you know, with Jane Campion directing, it's not sort of the male gaze, obviously. Um, and I think it's doing two things from a thematic standpoint. And I think again, where culture is caught up is the precarious position that women find themselves in with regards to sex in the sense that these sexual relationships, you know, for a man, it's like, Oh, you know, you go out and you get laid and boy, every, like you, a guy going out to get laid, that movie is swingers (laughs) and boy, isn't it fun. We all have a good time. We come up with catchphrases, Uh, a purely sexual movie for a woman is in the cut where, yeah, you might have sex, but you also might get murdered. And I don't mean to make light of that. It's just, it's a much more dangerous proposition that I think in the cut understands that this notion of sexual liberation is beset by the dangers that men present, that the, the, the number one threat to women is men. Um, and I think that's sort of the, the space the film operates in where this notion of sort of idyllic romantic relationships are put on a pedestal because the notion of a sexual relationship cannot exist because of the inherent dangers that men represent. The other half that I find very fascinating is I don't think this film would be even half as interesting as it is without Meg Ryan as the lead role. Um, 
because when all is said and done, we will remember Meg Ryan as like the, like a rom-com heroine. That is who she is. Like that's her legacy. You can't make classics like uh, sleepless in Seattle. And when Harry met Sally and you've got mail without like, that's your identity. And that's not to say like Meg Ryan has done dramas. She's done other kinds of movies, but that's what, that's her brand. And that's what she's known as. So in the cut is very different, obviously, um, because for all the romance of other Meg Ryan movies, um, they're kind of sexless. Like Meg Ryan gets together with Tom Hanks and they share like a, a sweet kiss, you know, or like, and when Harry met Sally, like Meg Ryan can do an impersonation of an orgasm, but does she actually get to have sex? And so this notion of Meg Ryan as like a sexual creature, like who, you know, to put it bluntly, fucks. Like this is, and that's not me trying to be crass. That's literally the wavelength that in the cut is operating on. Meg, she's not making love. She's not like consummating. It's fucking her and Mark Ruffalo are fucking. And when you put her, an actress like that in that context, it completely sort of turns everything on its head. It makes you view it from a completely different perspective. And so I think it's a genius piece of casting to have Meg Ryan in the lead role because it makes you sort of look at her completely differently. And then finally, there's sort of this whole post 9-11 thing that's happening because the film is set in New York. And the, the, nine, the, the Meg Ryan of, you know, you've got mail lives in a, you know, sort of a chaste, you know, nothing bad ever happens in New York, you know, <laughs> sleepless in Seattle, nothing bad ever happens in New York. Um, this is a post nine 11 New York that is gritty and grimy and dangerous. And obviously those films existed before, but not for Meg Ryan. And so I think in the cut is a very fast, like again, Meg Ryan, you know, will, will always be known for films like sleepless in Seattle. And that's great. She's great in them, but I think in the cut might be her most interesting movie. I've never seen in the cut, but I need to see it. Um, I similarly were the, you know, my knowledge of the film was the movie where Meg Ryan shows her boobs. Um, but it sounds fascinating. Who says the critic profession is male dominated? I ask you. <laughs> Seriously. Um, I did. And also- I think it's, cri- and, and, and credit where it's due. It's critical reappraisal has come from female critics. Like this is not me. This is, I'm a Johnny come lately to this. I am watching in the cut in 2020 because smart women came before me and said, Hey, you need to check out in the cut. Yeah. Uh, I will say another thing I watched this weekend, just I wanted to mention it because it's now over, is the um, the finale of Curb Your Enthusiasm. And I liked this season. I don't know if you've watched it at all. I stopped just, watching a couple seasons ago. Just um, I haven't been feeling it. <laughs> yeah. That makes any sense. I've just been watching Curb for so long. I just wasn't feeling it. But I have heard good things about this season. Yeah, I wasn't super into, I think it was last year or last season. Um, but I don't know, just like the, you know, it's also just so low stakes. Like the stakes are, you know, like uh, Larry offended someone. Um, so I don't know. I just find that very funny and uh, fun in these uncertain times. Um, but yeah, I, I enjoyed it. It had, to, it had some nice cameos and uh, uh, the season long arc was Larry opening up a... Um, uh, a spite store because he didn't like this guy's coffee shop. He got offended. So he opened up his own coffee shop next door, which was like almost identical, but just run by him uh, with better beans. So amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I'll and probably his, well, get his ideas of like, you know, the bathroom, there would be no toilets because he didn't want anybody defecating in his in <laughs> coffee shop. So only urinals. And then the women had like seats. They had to like hold onto a handlebar and squat over. <laughs> Because he didn't want anyone defecating. 
<laughs> All right. Uh, Damn it. You've convinced me to watch the season of Curb. Damn they it. got off to a great start with uh, him coming up with the idea of wearing a MAGA hat around L.A. as a way to avoid confrontation <laughs> with people. So. Uh, it was good. Good. I enjoyed all right, so we uh, we ran a poll before we started recording about what's the next uh, next topic. So we've kind of come to a a way to program the next two weeks of episodes. So this week's episode, it was very very close between Scott Pilgrim and Raiders of the Lost Ark. So we ran Raiders again in this week's poll, and it was slightly beat out by Social Network, but Raiders still had a very strong showing. So clearly there's a, there's a percentage of our readership that wants us to talk about Raiders of the Lost Ark. So what we're going to do is next week's episode will be Raiders of the Lost Ark, but because Social Network won this week uh, with the plurality of the vote, we are going the following week will be the Social Network. So those are our next two weeks of episodes is Raiders of the Lost Ark, and then Social Network, both films are streaming on Netflix. You have time to watch them, hopefully. Um, and that's what we'll be talking about. So, uh, you know, if you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week. <laughs>